0: This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arquia Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And in our 283rd episode, we have a bunch of news, including how sauropods held their necks. Nice. We're doing a really deep dive into sauropod posture, which has been a question ever since we found the first sauropods. (laughs) We also have an interview with Phil Tippett, famous for his dinosaur supervising on Jurassic Park, the original movie, as well as lots of other special effects projects. And we have dinosaur of the day, Storikosaurus. And just a quick note, we stopped posting every show on Patreon because previously we were putting all the non-ad free ones on there too, but I feel like it might have just been inundating people with emails that didn't add a lot if you're already subscribed to the show. But we do post when we're watching a new movie or like with Phil Tippett, we asked if people had questions, if our patrons had questions. So check your notification settings to make sure that you're getting these emails because you might miss out on say, asking an interviewee some questions you might have. And speaking of Patreon, we want to thank some of our patrons for keeping the podcast running. And this week we'd like to thank Kyle, Brendan Cavanaugh, the Tolbert family, Remy Rodriguez, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Avery, Albertosaurus, Trev, Ayrton and Everett, Greg, Jared Copeland, Leah, Bill Jago, and Argentrinosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> and Argentrinosaurus just joined so thank you very much
1: some great names so yeah thank you so much to everybody and uh, like we've been saying in the past few episodes we really appreciate having our dinosaur community especially now and we've been having a great time doing all the watch parties which reminds me our next watch party is this weekend on Saturday May 2nd at 1pm Pacific Daylight Time and we're up to Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom
0: yeah After this, we're going to go to Land Before Time, and then we'll have to figure out where we want to go next. We're not going to go through the whole Land Before Time series. I've already vetoed that idea, (laughs) because the first one is fantastic, but the later Land Before Time movies are not as fantastic.
1: The second one
0: is watchable. Isn't that one still a sing-along, though?
1: I don't remember. It's been many years.
0: The sing-along ones are hard to watch. (laughs) But in any event, join us this weekend, because it's not a sing-along Land Before Time. And check out our Discord too for the sync point where we'll start from so that we're all watching at the same time. Jumping into the news, our first article, as promised, is all about sauropods. I wanted to make it a sauropod filled episode just for Sabrina. No. So uh, this paper is intense. It was in Scientific Reports, <laughs> it's written by Daniel Vidal and others. And like I said, it's all about the posture of sauropods. And the paper really isn't that complicated. It's not one of the longer ones that I've read or anything, but the implications of it are very intense. And fortunately, Scientific Reports is open access. So if you're interested in seeing sort of the representation of what sauropod postures were like, you can see the paper in all of its glory with all the figures and everything. And there's also a really great write-up in SV Pow which focuses on some other details that might have been left out of the paper.
1: And SVPOW stands for Sauropod Vertebra Picture of the Week.
0: Yes, we've talked to a couple of their writers before and creators. But first of all, the paper itself isn't really about all sauropods. Almost all the media coverage of it talks about how like all sauropods had a more upright neck. Some of you have been talking about dragging tails more, which was a really weird thing, Hmm. because if anything, it emphasizes that they didn't drag their tails. But I can get to that more later. Uh, But really, they were just looking at one individual, and it was a Spinophorosaurus, which isn't a dinosaur we've talked about much before, but it is an amazing find. It came from an amazing find, I should say. Sv Pile has a picture of the original find, and it's breathtaking. It looks like a movie style excavation where it's like a full skeleton and it looks like it was really easy to just brush off the dirt and you were left with this amazing skeleton.
1: Just like the Velociraptor in Jurassic Park.
0: Yes, it really did look almost that good. It is missing a little bit. It's not quite as complete, so it's missing a little bit of the end of the tail and some of the head and then like the hands and feet but most of the rest of it is complete and like fully articulated it's, it's super cool
1: is it in the death pose
0: yes it's most of it is a spine that's kind of curled almost into a ball wow <laughs> <laughs> another cool thing about it is it has fused tail vertebrae near the end so they propose that it might have had spikes or a club and the name spinophorosaurus refers to those spikes so it might be like sort of a hybrid ankylosaur sauropod, which would be super cool. There are other ones like that too, but this might be one of them. And it's pretty recent too. It was described in 2009 from some finds in Niger. But these new researchers decided to go back and look at the skeleton more closely, and they digitized the whole thing. Nice. Yeah. It's really helpful when you're trying to closely figure out what kind of posture or biomechanics of the dinosaur itself without having to lift up these super heavy bones (laughs) and compare it closely. It's a lot easier to do digitally. So what they did was they started at the sacrum and the sacrum are the vertebrae that go through the hips. They're really important because they kind of define the connection there between the tail and the back of the animal and it can have a lot to do with the posture of the dinosaur. So starting from the sacrum they added each vertebra in front and behind it and tried to find the most likely neutral position of the whole back from the tip of the tail to the skull and see what sort of posture it might have had. And you know whether it had its neck raised up like a brachiosaurus or if it was down on the ground like like a sarmientosaurus.
1: <laughs> the Eeyore one?
0: Yeah. Or I think Nigerosaurus, too, is also like that, where we think it was a super low browser. Basically, it had its head on the ground all the time. So, everything in between is possible, too, obviously. And this is a reasonable way to figure out what kind of posture it might have had. But obviously, we're just talking about Spinophorosaurus because that's the only one that they actually modeled in the paper. They made some generalized statements later, but really, it's about Spinophorosaurus. Spinophorosaurus has already been mounted in a museum, and the position it's in is a lot like Dippy's mount, I would say. So it's got that back that's parallel to the ground, and then the neck sort of goes out in front and then sort of curls up a little bit at the front, a pretty typical diplodocus sort of stance, mostly horizontal, generally considered non-controversial. But Spinophorosaurus is a little bit different because its sacrum is described as being like a keystone. And again, the sacrum are the vertebrae that go in between the hips. So they built out from the hips, forward and backwards. And everything behind the sacrum, by definition, is basically the tail. And everything in front of it is the back. And then if you get farther forward, you get to the neck. But if you're just looking at the individual vertebrae, they don't look all that different because they're sort of just like interlocking pieces.
1: So you just know a little bit based on the size, right? Because some would be bigger than others, based yeah. On where in the body they are.
0: And the shape, too, how big the neural arches and all that kind of stuff are and how long they are, sort of front to back versus wide, can tell you a lot about where in the body they go. But the most important thing about the sacrum in Spinophorosaurus, and really in all sauropods that they're talking about, <laughs> is that it's wedge-shaped. So it's smooshed in so that's a little bit thinner on the top than it is on the bottom, sort of like it's bending its neck back and up towards the sky.
1: And that's not a preservation issue.
0: It could be. That is one potential problem. That's always a problem too, especially like in this case, we're looking at one individual. Mm -hmm. So then preservation bias is always a big problem and things get really distorted. But we think that in general, the sacrum gets fused and then, so it kind of gets stuck in that position. So hopefully during fossilization, It stays fused (laughs) and doesn't get messed with too much and stays in relatively the same sort of trapezoidal shape but yeah it's definitely a possibility but you can imagine with this trapezoid the more distorted it is meaning the narrower it is on top on the top of the back of the animal basically compared with the bottom near the legs the more its back is going to be inclined away from the ground because it has to, by definition, you know, be parallel to the vertebrae because <laughs> you don't want a big kink in the vertebrae. That's not a nice neutral position. And they're assuming for the most neutral position of the back, it's gonna more or less line up. Since the sacrum has this sort of trapezoidal shape, it also means that it's not just about the neck's angle, it's also about the tail's angle because it's you're measuring the comparison between the two, basically.
1: And that's why they talk about the neck posture being different.
0: Yeah, because they basically presume that the tail is going to stay perpendicular to the ground, and then if there's an angle in between the two, and it's in the direction of going up, either the tail has to go up or the neck has to go up, and they're just presuming it's the neck that's going up with the sacrum.
1: So more giraffe Titan-like.
0: Yes, more on that end of the spectrum than Diplodocus, but... Really, I keep misspeaking and saying neck posture, but it's really more of a torso posture because if you imagine your own hips and you're bent 20 degrees, which is about the angle that the sacrum has in it, it's not like your neck is bending. (laughs) It's your whole back.
1: To be fair, our necks are much shorter.
0: Yes, they are, which makes it kind of a weird comparison. We're also, you know, we stand vertically, whereas they stand with their back horizontal to the ground. So it's like, it's kind of weird. But as a effect of this the neck is actually more in line with the back than it is on something like dippy so you know with dippy how it it basically has that flat back and then they show its neck sort of curving up near the head this one doesn't do that because all that angle is achieved in the sacrum so then the back is just sort of parallel going up and the neck just kind of continues that same trajectory so it's a lot flatter it doesn't really have much of a bend at a shoulder into its neck at all It's kind of weird looking, because usually there's more of a, like on Brachiosaurus, you see it twice. It's got it at the hips, and then it's got it again at the shoulders. This one's a little bit more straight Hmm. in the shoulder part. The authors try to expand this into all dinosaurs, or all eosauropods, I should say, by saying, quote, these characters support this early eosauropod as a more capable high browser than more basally branching sauropods, end quote. And that's really because... Spinophorosaurus was around about 10 million years before all of the Morrison formation eusauropods. It's in the middle Jurassic. So it's 10 million years before things like Apatosaurus, Brontosaurus, Camarasaurus, Diplodocus, and Brachiosaurus. And it appears to be a high browser. So maybe that was what some of the early eusauropods um,
1: were doing. That's why it affects so many sauropods.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I should say, too, what eusauropods are. pods are basically every sauropod you think of. <laughs> It doesn't include like platyosaurus and there's a couple other like subgroups from the early Jurassic. Well, let's and be Middle honest. Jurassic. How many
1: people think of platyosaurus as a sauropod?
0: Yeah. It's like a pro sauropod, sauropodomorph thing. Yeah. But there, there are some other long necked, long tailed sauropods that aren't eusauropods, but it, none of them are super famous. So within eusauropoda, The authors note that every single one of them has over 10 degrees of sacrum wedging, if you want to call it that. So they all have this sort of angle between the tail and the neck, which if the tail is perpendicular to the ground, would increase the back's angle. I should say back, not neck. But apparently that's where a lot of people stopped reading. There are lots of reports that all sauropods now have this inclined neck posture. But the authors actually go on to say that it doesn't mean that all usauropods had upright postures because low browsers just developed other adaptations to compensate for this 10 degree angle. So basically, throughout the rest of their back, it would just slowly angle back down. Hmm. So it's not a like big kink like they have in the sacrum of over 10 degrees. It's just like a couple degrees per vertebra, but you could have that in a neutral position and it could be comfortable. Like our back has some natural curvature to it and works fine. <laughs> so they had a similar thing, and then by the time they get to the head, it's on the ground. Mm-hmm. So you can compensate for it, but it is one of those things where it's like, why do they all have this 10 degree sacrum wedge? It's probably because the common ancestor used that sacrum wedge in some way or another, and it might've been for high browsing.
1: And then they all branched out, and then to fill the different ecological niches, they adapted.
0: Yep, but they're all stuck. Even the ones that wanna have their head on the ground have these hips that are trying to push their head upwards. But that's how evolution is, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. you can't go back and change the hips of your ancestor because it doesn't work with what you're doing now. You just, you're stuck with what you have. Interestingly, with Spinophorosaurus, It's not only in that sacrum that it has the angle, it also has another 5 degrees of upward angle in the back, and then further 5 more degrees in the neck. So really its tail is angled 30 degrees from the skull, not just 20 degrees. As a result, its hips are an estimated 2.15 meters or 7 feet above the ground, and its head is 5 meters or 16 feet above the ground. Hmm. And that's because, like you say, its neck and its back are so long (laughs) that just a couple degrees of difference, it's... A 30-degree angle, but it goes up twice as high because it's just so long. One of the differences between the way it's mounted right now in the museum, it's kind of handy that they actually mounted it so that you can compare it so easily, and these authors' description of Spinaforesaurus is their assumption about how long the front legs are. So in something like a Brachiosaurus you're probably familiar with, they had really long front limbs and that helped them get their neck way up off the ground. Same thing with giraffe but then some other dinosaurs where they're more low browsers, their arms aren't nearly as long. You know, they're more like leg length and they have that parallel back or maybe even downward sloping a little bit. With the original reconstruction though, what they did was they assumed that even though it had a long humerus, it just had a shorter part of the lower front leg. So in other words, It compensated for that long upper...
1: With stumpy legs.
0: Yeah, stumpy lower legs, (laughs) but still long upper legs is kind of out of proportion, it looks like. But you never know. There's, I mean, there's an endless list of weird adaptation dinosaurs come up with, so it's totally possible. The authors of this latest paper, though, say that their proportions are more consistent with close relatives. So they think that it did have these much longer arms basically they call them but it's weird to call it an arm when it's on the ground all the time clearly ending in what looks like a foot (laughs) and since they're arms too they're attached to the scapula the shoulder blade and the position of that scapula makes a huge impact on the posture as well because the scapula in a sauropod connects just like it does with us to the upper arm so you're Your upper arm isn't connected to like your ribs or something. It's connected to the scapula. And depending on the position of the scapula in a sauropod, it can really change the effective length of that front limb. So the original reconstruction has the scapula much higher on the back, and it's not angled as far down. So in a weird way, the scapula is sort of acting like a third arm bone, (laughs) (laughs) making it even longer. And then depending on the angle of it, it can more or less line up with the humerus and make it much longer. Or if you put it more horizontal parallel to the ground, it can not impact the height of the neck as much.
1: So there could be a lot of variation.
0: Yeah. In the end, Spinophorosaurus appears to be sort of in between Camarasaurus and Brachiosaurus in its feeding height. So it's a pretty high browser, but not the highest browser.
1: It could reach what it wanted to reach.
0: Yes, unless that thing was on the ground. Because it looks like even if it bent as far forward as it possibly could, it couldn't reach the ground without, I guess, crouching or, you know, bending its legs. Because its neck alone mm-hmm. isn't long and flexible enough to get its head all the way to the ground.
1: Then it might have fallen over.
0: Yeah, if it had to try to squat awkwardly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. You don't see a lot of depictions of sauropod squatting. We interviewed somebody who said they might kneel, right? So right. They could, Like take a knee maybe or <laughs> an elbow <laughs> and then it'd be able to reach the ground. Probably. I definitely recommend Mike Taylor's write-up on SV POW because he adds quite a bit to the paper. First, he says, quote, the core observation is absolutely right. And it's one of those things that once it's pointed out, it's so obvious that you wonder why you never made anything of it yourself, end quote.
1: He sounds a little disappointed with himself.
0: <laughs> well, he does claim that This is sort of in agreement with what he's been saying all along. So he's trying not to be super biased about it Mm. because he supports sort of a more high browsing uh, notion in general. But in our defense, and by our defense, I mean anybody who doesn't work on sauropods for a living, usually when you go to a museum, you can't really see the sacrum because it's hidden within the other hip bones. So you can't see that angle at all. But if you're a paleontologist in the field, a lot of times the sacrum is separated from the other hip bones, and then you can see it. The biggest problem though, by far, with the paper and with any sort of reconstruction of a skeleton of a dinosaur is that it doesn't include cartilage. There isn't really anything the authors could have done about that because cartilage doesn't preserve except in extreme circumstances. And I don't think there's any chance where we're gonna find an entire sauropod with preserved cartilage in between all its vertebrae. (laughs) That That would be crazy. It'd be insane. I mean, I, I shouldn't say never, but it seems pretty unlikely. And cartilage can drastically change the orientation of vertebrae. So what they did was they were just lining up bones. But if there's cartilage in between them that's a little bit thicker on one side, that can act as its own sort of wedge and change the angle of the back or the neck or the tail or anything and completely change its posture in massive ways. And last, even if we know the angle between the head and the tail, we don't know how it's aligned with the ground.
1: So they could be dragging. Yeah. The tail, I mean.
0: Well, actually, it would be more like raising its tail.
1: Kind of like a cat who's angry or scared.
0: Yeah. I guess a a cat is probably a good analogy. You have the raised tail and then a flat back. (laughs) It could be in that sort of position and it would still work, I guess. Or I guess you could have a tail dragging. It would be weirder in this case because then that would make its back extremely inclined, Mm. and it would need some crazy long front legs for that to work. Or I guess it could just curve back individually, like we were talking about with the low browser, slowly throughout the rest of the back.
1: I wonder, though, based on like pretty much every dinosaur we talk about, when we talk about the tails, we talk about how they don't drag. So Mm -hmm. it would be weird if this one tail did drag.
0: Yeah, and then... He also mentions that there could be some distortion, but Sabrina already covered that. So all on top of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, the way fossils are preserved can change how they looked before. Absolutely. Good sauropod story, Garrett.
0: Thanks. It's kind of complicated. It's kind of hard to describe in audio form. So if you want the pictures to go with it, definitely check out the article in the SVPOW post.
1: And in another news... Just a couple quick items. So first, the Don Harrington Discovery Center in Texas has two new animatronic dinosaurs for its outdoor science park. And they're asking for ideas for names for their dinosaurs. They're going to choose the top five names after May 1st, and then everybody can vote. And they're looking for names for a T-Rex and a Triceratops. And if you want to submit a name, you got to comment on their Facebook posts. And the people who submit the winning names will be able to go to their unveiling ceremony for the dinosaurs and get a one-year free family membership to the center.
0: Nice. Smart of them to manually select the top five names so they don't end up with a Dinosaur McDinosaur face.
1: (laughs) Just (laughs) thinking that, yeah. (laughs) They learned from other people. Yeah. (laughs) And then last, for those who play Resident Evil 3, there's a Dino Evil 3 mod that turns the zombies into dinosaurs. It's version 0.1. <laughs> so there's only one dinosaur right now, T-Rex. It looks pretty fun, though the T-Rex the looks a little bit humpbacked from certain angles. There's a short video.
0: Maybe it was so that they could fit it in the same space that the zombies need to fit in. Maybe. Yeah, make it more upright. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Couldn't tell you why. It was only certain angles.
0: Look for the improvement in 0.1.1.
1: <laughs> this episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College
0: You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th.
1: Head over to cncc.edu/dinodig, you'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu/dinodig, D I N O D I G. And now, on to our interview with Phil Tippett.
0: And real quick, we have an extended version of this interview available to all of our patrons as premium content, so you might want to listen to that first. Or if you really enjoyed it, you can listen to this version as well. We're joined this week by Phil Tippett, who is the founder and chief creative officer of Tippett Studio. He is a two-time Oscar and Emmy Award winner for his visual effects work for the movies Jurassic Park and Return of the Jedi and documentary Dinosaur and the TV film Caravan of Courage and Ewok Adventure.
1: And many other credits too.
0: Yes. (laughs) I think those are the highlights though. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome. So I kind of want to start with a listener question because we asked our listeners who all know who you are, (laughs) what they would want to ask you. And I think a great, great place to start is what first got you started in animating.
2: Well, a whole bunch of things came first in 1955 or six. I was around five years old and saw King Kong on television, and that really blew me away. And it um, began a interest in dinosaurs, and so I ate up everything I could find on dinosaurs. Nice. And that stayed with me for a number of years. I would, you know, uh, hang out with paleontologists and find out what the latest theories were. You know, later on. And then in 1957, eight, Ray Harryhausen's The Seven Forge of Sinbad was what really, really knocked me out and got things started. However, at that point in time, there were really no periodicals or anything that indicated uh, you know, how that stuff was done. And to me, it was just magic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had a very rough idea. It wasn't until I uh, found a copy of Famous Monsters of Filmland edited by Forrest J. Ackerman, in the 60s, uh, who was a friend of Ray Harryhausen's, he would do little articles on on Ray's work with pictures, but really didn't explain anything much more than you know, the process with stop-motion animation. And then I looked that up and and kind of figured it out from there.
0: Awesome. So it sounds like from the very beginning, dinosaurs and animating were kind of linked together a little bit.
2: Dinosaurs were just dinosaurs. I was just <laughs> you know fascinated by the, the fact that there were these gigantic creatures on earth, you know, without men, you know, mm-hmm. so long ago, it's impossible to imagine. So, so yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. We just rewatched prehistoric beast, which I think is the first, is the first dinosaur thing I know of that you made. Was that your first dinosaur animation that got published?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's I took a, uh, after return of the Jedi, I took a year off and made that film with the idea that I could sell it to um schools at that time as kind of a inspirational dinosaur thing to get kids inspired about dinosaurs because i you know ran 16 millimeter projectors uh you know at schools on rainy days and stuff like that mm-hmm. but they said it was too scary oh. it, oh. it scared one kid you know they, they couldn't take it But that led to another dinosaur project called uh, Dinosaur. It was a a CBS show with Christopher Reeve. And so we did about 15 or 20 minutes of dinosaur animation for that. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, that one was great. I especially love the baby sauropod that you
2: have in there. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There's a cut someplace that we did. I think it might be on YouTube where we condensed all that stuff into like one contiguous thing and uh, a couple of the guys at work get a score for it and everything. So it plays through without any narration or anything like that.
1: There you go. Get those people out of the way. Yeah.
0: I thought the the people side of the animation was really great though. Christopher Reeve did a really good job. You could tell he's super into dinosaurs, oh, yeah, too. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, plus all the paleontologists who yeah. we interviewed.
0: Seeing Phil Curry like 40 years ago.
1: Mm-hmm. And Jack Horner. <laughs> <laughs> and Bob Parker, yeah. Well,
2: what's what's really weird is, you know, when I started contacting uh paleontologists um, that were about my age, they were inspired by King Kong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They went into science, I went into movies, and then the paleontologists that I've met since that are younger uh, were inspired by Jurassic Park.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: So, yeah, that's, we, yeah. we hear that a lot. Those are kind of the yeah. two waves, right? And then there wasn't a lot of dinosaur cinema in between the two, you know, until about the 80s, and there was a big gap where there weren't too many dinosaur paleontologists rising up the ranks in kind of that in-between phase.
1: Yeah, so thank you. <laughs> So speaking of Jurassic Park, can you uh, tell us a little bit about like the experience of making the dinosaurs?
2: Well, they weren't made. Well,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> <It's> <laughs> digital. <laughs> well, Stan Winston uh, did all the three D maquettes for those, mm-hmm. and and ILM scanned them. So that was all in their camp. My, I think my contribution to the movie was when uh, when Kathy Kennedy hired me. You know, um, Spielberg asked George if he had anybody to recommend to do the dinosaurs. And he said, Phil's your guy. And so I, I was a perfect match because I knew a lot about dinosaurs and I knew a lot about filmmaking and how, how to stitch them together. And so they hired me. And I think I was most influential in the writing phase mm-hmm. um, with David Kep and Stephen. Because in Crichton's book, uh, the first dinosaur you see is a brontosaurus, you know. And I told them, hey, you know what? There's a much cooler looking dinosaur, a brachiosaur. <laughs> and uh, then they, had, Crichton, had a duckbill dinosaur, and uh, you know, and there was supposed to be a stampede. And I told him, man, eh, it's just going to look like a bunch of ducks you know, <laughs> around. I mean, they had a bunch of running, running uh, duckbills and subsequent ones, but they didn't quite look right to me. So. I I suggested the, and the uh ostrich-like thing that could probably get up to 50 or 60 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And then I'd find, like, little details. In Crichton's book, he would have the Tyrannosaurus pick up a car like the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And it was like, eh, he can't do that. <laughs> you know, we got to be true to the, the physics. Why don't we just have him uh, drag the thing away? And uh, this little details like that. And then on location, you know, when the lawyer was getting killed in the in the storyboards in the script uh and was pretty much motivated by the budget you know the tyrannosaurus is just like a locomotive and just blasts <laughs> the thing over and crushes the guy and i was we were there and i just went to steven God, you know what? We've got to have a dinosaur eat a guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, we have to do that. And all the producers ran up, bringing their hands, going like, that's not budgeted for. And I, just, I said, listen, all you have to do is just tilt the camera up in one take. You don't have to use it, knowing full well that Stephen was going to use it. <laughs> so uh, that's how that got in. And then there was a, the, the Galli Mammoth's scene it just wasn't working somehow what was on the page wasn't translating and so Stephen had spent the morning trying to figure out different ways and have the actors doing all kinds of different things and just he was just kind of stuck and so i said i have an idea why don't when we see the gallon in the distance running through dr grant says they're flocking you know Mm. substantiating his theory and uh, Joey Mazzello says, right, this is the line I, I fed, Stephen. I think we're going to get flocked. And <laughs> I can't say that. And so he changed it to, I think they're flocking this way. <laughs> oh, that's great.
0: <laughs> yeah. So
2: there's just a lot of little things like that.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And I I realized after rewatching Dinosaur that I really need to give you credit because we often say that Jurassic Park was the first movie that really showed dinosaurs moving quickly. But in Dinosaur, you had like a lot of quick moving. I think it was like a Gallimimus or a similar sort of uh, dinosaur. And it was running just like in Jurassic Park. So Mm -hmm. you were really doing it almost a decade before Jurassic Park.
2: Yeah, well, it was all there in the paleontological records. So, you know, that was, uh, yeah.
0: And I guess the gallimimus was all you're doing as well.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I suggested it. Yeah. It it fit.
1: You're credited, especially with bridging this gap, too, between the stop motion and digital when it came to how to show these dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. And I guess, could you tell us a little bit about was it called the Dinosaur Input Device, and how you came up with that?
2: Yeah, well, initially, uh, it was all going to be done much more conventionally with stop motion, go motion, high-speed miniatures, and that kind of stuff. And then there was a huge breakthrough at ILM with computer graphics, and Stephen put down the edict that that's how it was going to be done. Mm. And there just weren't that many, uh, actually, there weren't any computer graphics animators that had done that kind of stuff before. They were all uh, all of them were from Canada because well, we weren't teaching anything like that in the states mm-hmm. and all they they had been educated in D- disney's so-called classic animation squash and stretch and flying logos and that kind of stuff but um, for these kind of movies it's a totally different <laughs> you have yeah. to approach it from a completely different you know perspective because you're putting in i mean they all thought like pixar animators and you know for these kinds of things you're integrating a character into a photographic uh background with earth's specific gravity, so you have to know the water weight of the thing and the mass and uh really be conscious of eye lines and perspective and and all that kind of stuff so they just they just didn't know that stuff yet,
1: yeah
0: yeah, but they they all looked it was so seamless that transition between. The animation and the puppets. Mm-hmm. were like, when you are talking about eating the guy, I always thought that was mostly puppet. But now, hearing you talk about it, I'm like, oh, obviously that must have been animated.
2: <laughs> you know, I mean, the digital device was a uh, was a result of uh, the fact that we, you know, there weren't, you know, our qualified animators out there. The only ones that were were stop motion animators, and so we went through this elaborate, you know, period where we built this really complicated device that, you know a couple of my guys could uh, animate uh, conventionally. And then that fed into a computer and then on the screen was at that time uh, wireframes. And so oh, wow, it was, a, it was a pretty precipitous learning curve.
0: Oh, interesting. So you more or less did it by stop motion and that created the wireframe for the digital effect.
2: Well, the wireframe was already there, but, but yeah, we, the motion was put in there by frame by frame, hand by hand animation. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs>
0: that explains a lot of how like, because it, it was it's so amazing how Jurassic Park, you watch it and you're like, this looks better than anything that came out in like the late 90s. How were they so far ahead? And it's because you came up with this solution where you could kind of skip that learning curve of how to get those details of animation that took so long to work out.
2: Yeah, well, it's also too in the blocking of the performances, you know, mm-hmm. and the beats and all of that stuff. Same thing again, you know. Uh, you know, that knowledge translated uh, over once we made the, my studio made the turn to Starship Troopers. I mean, you just know that stuff and, you know, it's, uh, you know, making the stuff look good is really important, but, you know, coming up with performances is, you know, that's the other side of the coin. Now, one of the things that was interesting on Jurassic was really early on, I, I wanted to get together with the sound designers. We, we did a bunch of test in stop motion that we called the dinosaur bible that was just the basis for a lot of ways these things could and would move and uh that was a a crossover with stan winston and his guys because there was so much back and forth between cutting between his puppets and the computer graphics stuff Uh, but the computer graphics stuff wasn't up and running yet so we, we built stop motion puppets off of uh stan winston's stuff and um and just did a bunch of running cycles and behavioral cycles and stuff like that that they then used to you know kind of uh, rehearse to and one of the things i i really wanted to do was to uh early on find the voices for the characters and you know it's just like doing an animated feature that's what you want to find first is the voices and the work to that so i worked for a couple of weeks with gary rides from using the, the sound designer, using these uh, dinosaur um, Bible pieces. And he came up with the, uh, the sounds for the T-Rex and the uh, raptors. And those were the key scenes that uh, we were working on, the, the two of the uh, set pieces, the raptor kitchen and the Tyrannosaurus paddock. And ILM did all the rest of the stuff.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's awesome. A very iconic work, too, because that T-Rex noise is like oh, yeah. so ubiquitous. Nobody even thinks of another sound that a T-Rex could possibly make anymore.
2: <laughs> yeah, he used all kinds of stuff, animals. Uh, I think a huge chunk of it was uh, like a, a train hitching, just big sounds. <laughs> <laughs> That's I didn't know
1: that. I'd only ever read about the animal sounds before. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's so cool were there any other really memorable moments to working on jurassic park
2: uh well i'm right in the beginning you know i mean I, i'm friends with dennis murin and I, i've been very aware of the progress of computer graphics at ilm uh but didn't realize or didn't believe that it was possible to create a, a living breathing you know animal previously everything that was kind of down to the hallucinogenic realm and hmm. when they came up with this whole thing Stephen made the edict to uh, it uh, I, I got like really sick with pneumonia and had to stay in bed for two weeks and all that because I thought my world was was totally over and you know uh, but they wanted to keep me on because I, I knew stuff that nobody else knew and we' go down and we showed Stephen the um, final test that ILM had come up with and he said, how does that make you feel? Phil, I mean, so I said like George Millay, and he goes, "Oh, he was a great filmmaker," and uh, and then I said, "Well, actually, it makes me feel extinct." And he goes, "That's a great line. I'm putting that in the movie." <laughs> so that's how Doctor Grant ended, ended up with that line.
0: Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's good in some ways, but
2: yeah, yeah well, it's- it all worked
0: out in the end. It did. I love stop motion, but it, is stop motion, you think, kind of not so much in the future of animation, or do you think there might still be a place for it?
2: Not for those kind of movies. You know, mm-hmm. for Henry Selleck-type movies and all the stuff they're doing up in Oregon with Laika, and Guillermo's doing is uh, stop motion Pinocchio. So, more in the realm of the puppet film, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it'll continue to survive, except those things don't make a lot of money. Guillermo's probably will, but all the of stuff, you know, exists only because there's a billionaire dad, you know, fronting the money for it. They lose <laughs> money on all their stuff. And Tim Burton's not doing any stop motion anymore for that reason. That's why it's important for me. I'm, I've been working for the last 30 years. and I'm very close to completion on a, a movie called Mad God that's built primarily out of stop motion animation. So that should get released after COVID goes away. Oh, cool. Are you
0: using this time to sort of finish it up?
2: Yeah, we're—I've got it all shot, and so we're just compositing and sound and music is going on it right now. We got enough; we've got the cut locked, so the composer and the sound designer are working away because they got nothing better to do, which actually worked (laughs) out for me really well.
1: (laughs) Good silver linings.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) Could you tell us anything about what that movie's going to be about?
2: I can't explain it to myself. (laughs) You know, it's um. It's the antithesis of anything uh, Hollywood would ever do, and for you know a good ten or twelve years, I came up with different kind of horror sci-fi ideas to do in Hollywood, and you know nobody wanted to do any of them. And my buddy Ed Neumeier, who wrote Robocop and the Starship Troopers, told me that's because all of your ideas are art damaged, meaning that they would be like art films, and art films never make any money. Mm-hmm. So. That finally sunk in. And so uh, I started working 30 years ago and shot shot some stuff. And then it kind of went, you know, the digital revolution hit and we had a couple of kids. And there's no way you can make that kind of thing on your own. And then like uh, 10 or 12 years ago, I was archiving it. Some of the guys in my studio uh, got really excited because they were of the generation that were all inspired by Star Wars and RoboCop and whatnot. And that's what they wanted to do, but that train left the station, and they were now digital artists. But this, they they volunteered to reboot and start the thing up again. So all of a sudden, they got a lot of volunteers, and because uh, digital originally I shot, you know, the first six minutes on thirty five millimeter film, but all the digital cameras and you know compositing, all that made it feasible. Mm-hmm. So yeah, then we just spent the next ten years. I primarily worked on it, coming up with. Um, You know, scenarios and building stuff and planning things on the weekends, I could get as much as, you know, 15 people coming in to help and do heavy lifting. They'd be like students, you know, college students, high school students, fans, whatever, that lived in the Bay Area. And uh, they would come in and do a lot of grunt work for me in addition to the guys that were really skilled and talented that could help me set up and light and animate. So yeah I, eventually we got it done i'm I'm just kind of amazed, but it's um it's very kind of philosophical and dreamy, and you know there's no way I could have ever pitched it to anybody in in Hollywood that would have ever you know understood it at all. so I just had to do it myself.
0: Do you mind if we have a couple of listener questions? Yeah. so one of them, which apologies uh, ahead of time, yes. <laughs> We saw you made a response video to this already, but somebody asked how you feel about the memes about the you had one job for being called the dinosaur supervisor on Jurassic Park.
2: Uh, somebody had to explain it to me. I, I did not understand that joke. At all. <laughs> um, you know, I guess people had nothing better to do to amuse themselves. Than to <laughs> know,
0: but, yeah. I think it's because it's one of the first names that rolls on the credits and it says dinosaur supervisor. And you've just seen like the dinosaurs escape and go everywhere. And you're like, wait a second.
2: Uh, it could be. It
1: could be. Yeah, they I like misinterpreted
2: your... that though. I'm, I was on their side. I wanted to kill mankind. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's the answer. Yeah. You were supervising the revolt. <laughs> I was supervising the dinosaurs. Kill them all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's perfect. <laughs>
0: Where online, like, is there any way we can go so that we make sure we don't miss new stuff that you make?
2: Well, this Mad God Project, the first three chapters, I crowdfunded with Kickstarter. So it's out there. I think if you go to the Tippett Studio link, you can find out how to find it. I I would highly recommend getting the DVD or the Blu-ray of it because it it was meant for the big screen. You know, and you know if you look at it on, I think there are other links where you can watch it on on your laptop, but it's just that's not the way to look at it.
0: Cool. Yeah, we we definitely buy Blu-rays of all the stuff we like. (laughs) (laughs) Does Tippett Studio have any social media channels or anything?
2: Yeah, I'm doing an Instagram thing. Oh, cool. Now that I have plenty of time, I I post stuff nearly every day. You know, and we're closing. And we started about. A month ago or so, we're closing in on 5,000 hits. So,
0: awesome! Nice. We'll make that 5,001 as soon as we get off the call.
2: (laughs) Well, there's plenty of stuff, little anecdotes and stories and stuff like that that I haven't haven't told before that you know all of a sudden remember. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us.
2: Yeah, you're welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Phil, for taking the time to chat with us. We loved it and. I know that our listeners really appreciate it as well. And thank you also to our listeners who gave us some questions to ask.
0: Yeah. And again, we have more of those questions in our extended interview, which is available to all of our patrons as premium content.
1: And not dinosaur related, but Phil, we look forward to watching Mad God when it's out. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Storikosaurus, which was a request from Tyrant King via our Patreon and Discord, so thanks! It was a Herrera sword that lived in the late Triassic in what is now Brazil in the Santa Maria Formation, and it was a small and probably fast and bipedal carnivore. It had long, slender limb bones, and the tibia was longer than the femur. It had strong hind limbs and small forelimbs. It was estimated to be about 7.5 or 2.25 meters long and weighed 66 pounds or 30 kilograms. And it had a long, stiff tail, about 4.4 feet or 1.3 meters long, that may have helped it run and jump. Not many fossils have been found, so reconstructions tend to be based on it having some primitive features. So it's often depicted as having five toes and five fingers. It had only two sacral vertebrae, which is a very primitive feature. And it had hollow limb bones with thick walls. The jawbone was almost as long as the femur, so it probably had a large head. It may have had a sliding joint in the jaw so it could move forwards and backwards and up and down, but a redescription of the holotype in 2011 found that the intramandibular joint and a few other characteristics could not be confirmed because of either poor preservation or it just wasn't available in the material when they were redescribing the holotype. Storicosaurus probably ate small and medium-sized vertebrates. It had serrated teeth that curved back, and it may have been able to catch and hold its prey and slice and tear flesh. The type species is Storicosaurus pricei. It was described and named by Edwin Colbert in 1970, and the genus name means Southern Cross Lizard. It's named after the Southern Cross Star constellation, which is the coat of arms of Brazil, and you can also see this constellation in the Southern Hemisphere. At the time that it was described, not many dinosaurs had been found in the southern hemisphere. The species name is in honor of paleontologist Lulon Ivor Price. Price had found the fossils as part of an expedition in 1936 from Harvard University's Museum of Comparative Zoology, along with Theodore White. The fossils were found in the Santa Maria Formation, Rio Grande do Sul, in southern Brazil, and they found a lower jaw and partial skeleton, including vertebrae, rib fragments, femora, tibia, fibulae, some teeth fragments and more.
0: Pretty good.
1: Yeah. Well, the skull is missing, but the lower jaw is pretty complete. Stericosaurus is one of the earliest dinosaurs around from about 225 million years ago. And it's closely related to Herrerasaurus. Teiwasu barbanae was referred to as a synonym by Garcia and others in 2019. Tewasu was named in 1999 based on a right femur and tibia. And according to the authors, its anatomy was very similar to Stericosaurus. Brazil's National Museum had a reconstruction of Storicosaurus, but unfortunately the museum burned down in September 2018. The skeleton, however, is on display at Harvard University's Museum of Comparative Zoology.
0: And our fun fact of the day is probably PG-rated.
1: Not G-rated?
0: I don't think so, because it's slightly raunchy. (laughs) It's the question of whether or not dinosaurs peed. Something I think got brought up at some point on the Discord server, and I wanted to get around to it eventually. The short answer is we're not sure if dinosaurs peed. So birds don't pee. They release solid uric acid, which is that weird white thing that you see. Basically they convert urea to uric acid, which actually takes more energy than washing it out with water like we do. It's always easier to sort of rinse things out, but this way they don't have to have a bladder and they can conserve their water use better and it possibly also makes them lighter weight. So obviously for birds, it's a better solution. Desert tortoises also conserve water in a similar way. They emit basically uric acid, but I think they still have bladders. So it's kind of an in between hybrid solution. But since tortoises and birds have a common ancestor that is shared with non avian dinosaurs, and they're pretty close relatives in terms of what was going on in the Mesozoic, (laughs) it's definitely possible that dinosaurs didn't pee. But then again, there are other modern animals that can pee. So we're not really sure. And since neither pee nor bladders fossilize, it's super hard to tell.
1: Just poop and vomit.
0: Yep. <laughs> but maybe we'll get really lucky and find a piece of amber with some uric acid in it or a bladder in it or something. I guess, I mean, that weird white stuff birds make might fossilize. And maybe we could do a chemical analysis on coprolite and see what kind of urea content it has in it. But as far as I could find, we're still not really sure at all. It seems like most scientists aren't super interested in this question. <laughs> Probably because copper light has all sorts of amazing stuff in it, where you can learn about the diet and all that kind of stuff. But I think pee doesn't have the same sort of uses.
1: And on that PG note, <laughs> that wraps up this episode of Vino Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And please. Join our community, watch dinosaur movies with us. You can do that through our page patreon.com slash inodino. Thanks again and until next time.